1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science Podcast. Today I'm joined by Daniel Gillen, Gillian Gillian, um, who is the author of The Loud Minority, Why Protests Matter in American Democracy, an incredibly timely read. Um, this is published by Princeton University Press in 2020, and it discusses the role of protests, activists, protests in the street much of what we're seeing these days on television and the connection between those protests and elections and the electorate. Um, And I will let Daniel tell us a little bit more about all of that as we discuss his book, The Loud Minority. Hello, Daniel, and welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Sure. I'd love for you to start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, and how you came to this particular project.
0: Well, as you've mentioned, my name is Dan Gillian, professor of political, um, I'm a professor in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And I do research on political protest, uh, public policy, public opinion, do a lot of different things, but I try and focus on racial and ethnic minority concerns. and. I've written before about protest activity, in particular how the civil rights movement was able to influence policies. My first book entitled The Political Power of Protest is where I begin my career looking at activism. And in that book, I was able to show that protest is very influential. Politicians pay attention to protest activity. It influences congressional behavior, leading to more bills, influenced presidential actions in the action of the Supreme Court. After I finished writing that book, I felt like something was missing. Uh, and and as, as I thought about it, I realized what was missing was an entire discussion of how the American public perceives protests. And that is what spunked me to write this new book, The Loud Minority. And it tries to show how the protesters in the street communicate to the average Joe sitting at home or Jane um, looking at protests? What do they think about it? How does it influence their actions?
1: And, and you start out the book, you, you, you specifically pinpoint the terminology that President Nixon used with regard to this idea of the silent majority. Um, and you also note how it's been recaptured by um, candidate Trump and then President Trump. Um, but you also talk about the sort of dichotomy and thus the title of your book, um, The Loud Minority, as the inverse of the silent majority. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of framing of the discussion of the connection between the public and? Protest. Yes. So I
0: situate the book first in that very important presidential statement by Richard Nixon. He came out and he was trying to persuade the American people why we should keep troops in Vietnam. And in trying to persuade them, he realized that there were a certain population pushing back He recanted an interaction with a protester that had a sign that said, bring the boys home. Uh, And he said to himself, I don't agree with that protester in doing a speech. He tried to persuade the American people to side with him. And he referred to the American people who weren't protesting as the silent majority. He said, I need the silent majority to stand um, with me. That. Term the silent majority had a racial bend to it, and the reason why I say that is because many in the nation at that time, even Nixon, knew that racial and ethnic minorities were coming home in body bags, disproportionate to other racial and ethnic to other um, individuals in this nation. So you had disproportionate number of black and brown citizens, soldiers coming home in body bags. This is why. Martin Luther King pushed back on individuals going to Vietnam. The civil rights movement pushed back uh, against our involvement in um, Vietnam. And, And it was a major sort of point of contention. After a period of time, the term, the silent majority, fell out of usage because people realized that it had a lot pent up there. It fell out of usage for roughly a couple of decades, until we saw it again with none other than President Donald Trump. He used the term asylum majority beginning in 2015, asking the American people to stand with him. I mean, you could get signs made <laughs> on Amazon that says the silent majority stands with Trump, I think for the low price of $4.70 or something like this, It had Couple of thumbs up, even saying the paper is really sturdy. But what was really, but what was really interesting about that terminology was that President Trump was trying, and candidate Trump at that at that time was trying to draw a distinction between protesters and individuals at home who weren't protesting, between the silent majority who wasn't protesting and the loud minority, which I refer to them who were. Protesting. That line in the sand is unrealistic. It's a fallacy. It is the angry boogeyman that does not truly exist under the bed because the silent majority is not always opposed to the loud minority. The silent majority, in my opinion, is oftentimes informed and educated by the protesters in the street and it influences their actions. And so that's the crux and the heart of the Lao minority title.
1: And and that's what I wanted to ask you about next in terms of that that point that you are making that is really the sort of thrust of the research in the book is the connection between what is going on in the streets, in activism, um, in protests, Um, Again, we in this past week, we are living through it um, all across the nation, and in fact, globally, there have been other protests that are in support of the protests in the United States around Black Lives Matter, Um, but that these protests aren't just the folks who are protesting in the street. Your point is that the people who are at home, who may not be protesting, are in fact thinking about and coming to understand the protests in new and different ways. Um, But this is also within a sort of ideologically polarized framework. Can you talk about how the protests are, in fact, influencing and impacting people at home?
0: Absolutely. Gone are the days when you see a protest and you say to yourself that the protest deals only with the issue in which individuals are protesting. For example, if we see protests nowadays in which individuals are pushing back against abortions, we oftentimes think that's a conservative leaning protest. Or if we see protests pushing for women's rights or civil rights or pushing for immigration policy that is more flexible, we think to ourselves, that's a liberal protest. Our polarized mind, because polarization has, has increased in America, that, that polarized mind allows us to put protests into ideological bins in which we see them as being liberal or we see them as being conservative. As a consequence of that classification, protests becomes linked to one another. So protest that deals with race also is linked to protest that deals with immigration policies and protest that deals with women's rights. When liberal politicians see those protests, it informs their actions. It also informs the actions of voters. When voters see those liberal protests, they say to themselves, do I agree or do I disagree with this perspective? And if you happen to be a Democrat, you see liberal protests, you're persuaded by what's going on. You're more likely to pay attention to the concerns in that uh, protest activity, and you're more likely to do something about it. The same happens on a conservative side. When conservatives see uh, protests take place, they're more likely to act. In this case, when we look at conservative voters, we're really talking about Republicans. When Republicans see conservative protests, They say to themselves, oh, I get it, I understand, and they are more likely to act. Now, what is protest doing? It's bringing about saliency to an issue. It's informing these voters on what's taking place. Take, for example, racial and ethnic minority protests. These protests have the ability to put the issues on the policy agenda in the public's agenda. And so things dealing with housing, inequality, Um, the incarceral state, looking at also unemployment for racial and ethnic minorities. These protests speak volume to these issues, and Democratic voters gain a better understanding of what's taking place in the Black community once they see these protests. If we flip it to the other side, and Republican voters, when they look at protests that are conservative, let's say the ability to be able to hold on to your guns, they understand the issues They are able to make sense of what's going on within that debate, and that information sticks with them when they head to the polls. So protest has the ability to link on to the overall pushback along ideological lines, whether we're talking about liberal-leaning protests or conservative-leaning protests.
1: So in a certain sense, the protests also become a sort of shorthand, the way that the parties have become shorthand or information communicated to the electorate. Is that, is that a correct characterization?
0: An even better shorthand, the protests are more detailed and they have a tad bit more passion about the issue. So a protests can be uh, very passive or they can be very contentious. And the more contentious these protests are along the lines of the ideological scale, the more unlikely it is to prompt Democrats or Republicans to behave in a certain way. So it it, it does serve as a shorthand for them to um, engage. And it not only serves as a shorthand in the moment when they actually see the protest, but when voters head to the ballot box, they begin to assess uh, a politician's record on specific concerns that they care about. And they oftentimes look back at protests and activism in that representative's congressional district, or for presidents, looking at the entire nation and how protests has either turned more liberal or more conservative.
1: And so in terms of the research itself, you looked at a couple of different sort of ways of assessing the connection between um, protests and activism, Um, and the influence on the electorate. And you specifically make the case that this is the electorate and not sort of the entire citizen body. Um, But before we dive into the details, can you explain that distinction a little bit?
0: Yes. The difference between the electorate and the entire public is that the electorate, they're active. They're engaging in the voting process. And so, as a consequence, they're a tad bit more ideological. They're literally looking for ways to inform and reinforce their ideological beliefs. This leads them to be a tad bit more polarized. Whereas, when you look at the American public, the American public isn't always voting. If you look at it uh, as a collective, you know, the, the vast majority of people do vote, but there's a large percentage that don't vote and kind of don't care about the issues. However, voters, when they see protests, because they are more polarized, they are more apt to put these protests in the ideological bins and say to themselves, mm, this is a liberal protest, this is a conservative protest, and to act upon it they are also more likely to be connected to protesters because they have a vested interest in what's taking place. And this is what's brought out with the making of ideological protests, the theoretical framework that I put forth. That protest really allows the activists and the voters to have a link, this ideological link, to bind themselves together in a real interesting way. And that, that sort of connection isn't always seen for the entire public.
1: And, and you also go into the book and talk about, and this is a little bit inside baseball, but it is the New Books and Political Science podcast, um, about the fact that the research on sort of protests and social movement has mostly been sort of bifurcated by disciplinary boundaries. Um, And that, you know, sort of looking at social movements has often been more the job of sociologists and historians and looking at sort of the political effects. The policy has been the role of political scientists, whereas your work is sort of pulling all those threads together. So before we move into the details, can you talk a little bit about that sort of disciplinary problem that you solved? This
0: disciplinary problem has existed. For years. And that's unfortunate, but it's the reality of our scholarly times. Sociologists focus on the sociology of activism and protests who decides to engage and why they engage. Political scientists focus on what happens after um, individuals involve themselves in the electoral process. And so you have two disciplines looking at political behavior but looking at it from a different perspective political scientists focus on the electoral outcomes and in institutions and sociologists look at movements but they focus in on why individuals are engaging in movements are engaging in movements but not necessarily what happens in the aftermath and that's where I come in. I say that protests are as American as apple pie. I mean, they, they are the, um, the, the, the thread of the, uh, the, the fabric of American democracy, I believe. And they have the ability to change not only the way that we see politics, but how politics are conducted. And you think back to the very first protest, the Tea Party. Uh, movement, which allowed for us to create and establish this nation. And so I I push for bringing these two disciplines together. And it has not always been easy because I'm disowned by the sociologists and I'm considered to be uh, a man in, in, on the far extremes of research, sometimes by political scientists, uh, at least in the beginning stages of my career. I I've gotten to a place now where I'm I'm welcomed a little more, which has been a nice turn of events, I will say. Uh, But I've been able to bring these two streams of literature together in a way that shows that protest is influencing our institutions and influencing our policy and political decisions.
1: And, and so I wanted to, to take you to one of the chapters that I found really fascinating, and perhaps it's my political science hat here, um, that you spent time um, also with um, colleagues um, at the conventions in 2016 to try to sort out what was going on with regard to the political protests at the Republican and the Democratic conventions can you talk about why the that particular political space was one that you wanted to sort of examine more closely and also what you found there?
0: looking at political conventions, I think is an important avenue of research because the conventions they're an opportunity for an, a politician to talk about their platform, for the nominee to put forth their their future plans, and for individuals to, to consider those ideas. But it's also a space in which protesters descend upon. You look over time, throughout history, protesters have used that space because political conventions have become almost a live, watchable sport. And individuals are tuned in, they're paying attention, millions of dollars are put into these conventions, and they get a great deal of television coverage. Protesters realize that, and they try and put forth their concerns. And so for a researcher, we say, oh, this is this is absolute fodder for us, and we need to take advantage of it. And so I had a team that went both to the 2016 Democrat and Republican National Conventions For us to hear what protesters were saying, and we surveyed a host of different protesters in Philadelphia and also in Cleveland. Philadelphia is where the Democratic National Convention took place in 2016, and uh, Cleveland is where the Republican National Convention uh, took place. And they put forth a host of different concerns. We literally asked them a ton of questions. Why are you here protesting? What's on your mind? And typically with surveys, you ask a series of questions. You give multiple choices. But with us, we wanted to have open-ended responses for individuals, for them to tell us whatever. If you think that Daniel Gillian is the most important problem facing the nation today and that's what we should address, hey, tell me that. And that is what many of our... um, Surveyors did, many of the activists, they didn't say Daniel Gilliam was the most important problem. <laughs> they told us uh, about those concerns. And those concerns ranged from the politics being corrupt, they ranged from individuals not doing enough for racial and ethnic minority concerns. They were across the board interesting, but they had different takes. However, once we got back, Into our office, and we started doing analysis on these statements. We realized that they formed ideological bins. We did a network analysis in which we would connect statements by one protester with statements from another protester to see how they were related and if they overlapped. And what we noticed was that indeed there was an ideological overlapping in which. Individuals putting forth liberal causes had similar things to say, and conservatives putting forth conservative causes had conservative things to say. And and so that that led us to believe and to have greater confidence that there is this ideological um, line drawn within protesters in which there's liberal-leaning protests and there are conservative-leaning protests, and they influence the electorate in different ways.
1: And, and did you find any distinctions in terms of the protests that were going on at the RNC convention versus the protests that were going on at the DNC convention, aside from the fact that they may have been in the ideological opposition to the, protest, to the convention going on? There was
0: a major difference between the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention especially when you look at protesters and what they were saying. Not only what they were saying, but also how they looked. And what I mean by that was, and what I mean by that is, there are a lot of protesters at the Republican National Convention walking around uh, with guns, uh, more so than the Democratic National Convention because it's an open carry state. So uh, some of our workers were a little nervous interacting and and talking uh, with them. But in terms of the concerns they were putting forth, we saw a great deal of racial and ethnic minority protests at the Republican National Convention, uh, more so than we saw at the Democratic National Convention. When you look at the Democratic National Convention, there were a lot of protests asking why Bernie Sanders weren't on the ticket. And they, they also felt disappointed that more wasn't said about their concerns that were more liberal than what Hillary Clinton was putting forth. So you had a lot of candidate-type protests. But you also saw a great deal of protests dealing with um, women's issues. You had protests uh, dealing with inequality and with housing also are, are occurring. Most of the protests that took place at the Republican National Convention focused in on uh, racial and ethnic minority concerns. We also focused, as we might expect, on Donald Trump and the candidate.
1: And and so you had the experience of going to the conventions, and 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 doing this kind of open-ended survey to see that there was kind of ideological um, consistency in terms of the protests. But of course the question that's always often on people's mind is what about the money? Right. And you have a whole chapter of the book devoted to the question of, um, as you know, from, from Watergate following the money, um, and the connection between, um, activist protests and donations. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in terms of the the that particular connection and how that relates also to this question of the electorate being engaged even if they are silent
0: best chapter of the book in my opinion <laughs> it is a chapter that you sit down and you write or you 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 study and you walk in with some expectations but they're not huge. And then you find a result that's just mind-blowing. It's just, it it makes sense once you discover it, but you're surprised that no one had ever spoken about this before. And and that is what happened with this particular chapter, following the money to find the financial benefits of protest. I looked at how protests can be influential or the way in which we donate in the way in which we give. In order to do this, I start with two places in America that you wouldn't expect to be the bedrock of protests. And, and they are Phoenix, Arizona, and Portland, Oregon. Uh, however, during the particular time period in which I assessed protests, looking at this from 2016 to 20. Uh, 18, in those two cities, they were in the top five for liberal protests that occurred in America. And they were pushing back uh, for a host of different reasons, dealing with uh, March march for Our Lives, guns in schools, women's rights, immigration. and, And those protests were plentiful. What was fascinating about those protests was that after they occurred, more campaign dollars began to pour out from those districts. If we wanted to put this into perspective, on average, any congressional district was giving around $24,000 to the Democratic Party. However, if you assess the money coming out of Phoenix, Arizona, we saw the amount of money coming from there was around $36,000. And if you look at Portland, it's around $60,000 that were coming out of these various districts. I then began to broaden the impact and I grabbed data from the Federal Election Commissions, looking at the FEC to see well, is this a trend that takes place throughout America? In every single congressional district, and does it affect maybe unique political candidates, maybe women or racial and ethnic minorities? And so I assessed the impact of protests that were liberal and protests that were conservative and tracked the impact. And what I found is that for liberal protests, it has a huge impact on African American political candidates. To offer you a substantive Example, one liberal protest occurring in a zip code leads to 25 extra dollars going into an african American's political campaign. Now that right there is substantial, given that in any given two year period, you could have hundreds of protests. It's also significant because often, African-American candidates are not able to raise as much money for their campaign as their white counterparts. However, protest provides us with an equilibrium here. It, it allows for racial and ethnic minority candidates to receive more funds. Now, I know that if you sat down and spoke with a protester Many of them don't want to be associated with money, and they're not in here to try and raise money or trying to push money in one direction or the other. The reality, though, is that protesting is a multi-billion dollar industry event um, uh, that that, that takes place in uh, America. And and to me, that is uh, fascinating. And, And it's not just the thousands of dollars that's giving to campaigns, we see the effect with incremental amounts, maybe around $25 to $50 individuals are giving, but they're giving. So it's not only them going to the polls, but they also are going into their pockets to try and make sure that their ideological position, those that are voiced by protesters, are being heard in the halls of
1: Congress. And, and so you, you mentioned um, how this uh, contributes to the potential for African-American candidates in particular to um, receive more campaign dollars. Um, what did you see on the right side of the aisle?
0: On the right side of the aisle, we also saw more money going into campaigns for conservative politicians when conservative protests took place. So money, I I always say this, that when protest occurs, everyone makes money. However, liberals just make a little more of it. And and that's the reality, is that protests are able, uh, across the ideological um, aisle here, to prompt individuals to give political campaigns, but liberal politicians often receive more. And I don't know if that's because Democratic voters are prone to protest activity occurring and and, and they're more likely to pick up that signal. But it is the case that Democratic politicians are more likely to benefit from liberal protests, but conservatives also do benefit somewhat from um, protests occurring.
1: So, we've talked a, a bit about the political conventions and follow the money, which, as you said, was sort of like an aha moment. Um, but the the last couple chapters of the book are about, you know the connection between protest and policy. Um, can you talk about the policies in particular that you focused on, and also what you saw with regard to the connection between? activism and protest, and policy outcome? So when we look
0: at voter turnout, voter turnout is deeply influenced by political protests. And it might not seem as though that's the case when we assess more recent protests. But the reality is, is that protest works at bringing people to the polls. What I wanted to do was I wanted to take a protest in which there were much doubts about its influence. And so I, I chose Black Lives Matter and I chose to look at Black Lives Matter in 2016 because we saw a lot of protests in 2015 and in 2016 underneath President Obama pushing for racial and equality, trying to ask the government to do something. And then we saw a candidate such as Trump and Black Lives Matter begin to push back uh, uh, against even Trump's candidacy, and, and people thought that maybe they might be able to influence things. And if Hillary Clinton was elected, then that means that Black Lives Matter protests worked. But she wasn't elected, so many concluded, "Well, Black Lives Matter protests did not uh, work." The reality is that protests. Often has a localized effect. It influences individuals who are closest in proximity to the protest. This is the same thing with politicians. When you are thinking about social issues in America, you often look in your backyard to see what's going on. Why would a voter in Miami, Florida be too concerned about protests that are taking place in? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, they might pay attention to it, but it might not mobilize them to engage. And that's what I found when looking at Black Lives Matter protests. If you look at 2016 and compare it to 2012, more individuals, more African-Americans in particular, voted in 2012 relative to 2016. And that makes sense. President Obama wasn't on the ticket. You had an enthusiasm gap there. But if you look at the places in which Black Lives Matter protests occurred, more individuals turned out to vote, especially when we're looking at places that had a great deal of uh, minority protests. Take Minneapolis, for example. As a result of the Black Lives Matter protests, took place in 2016 now, we saw a 2.5% increase in voter turnout, not a decrease among the Black community. If you look at Philadelphia as well, around a 2% increase in Black voter turnout. These are places in which we saw a great deal of Black Lives Matter protest activity occurring. So Protest has this ability to bring saliency and urgency to an issue to prompt individuals to head out to the polls and, and that's what it did for those two places and other places that saw protests occur in their backyards
1: and and so the the last chapter um, is about the political protests. That shapes essentially opportunities and candidate fortunes, as you say. Um, and you, you tie this again together with, you know, what do the protests want? Um, oftentimes it's some sort of policy change that a politician can enact once in office. So that there's again this connection between the protesters, the protests, the demands, and the people who actually go out and vote, which are larger numbers than the folks who are demonstrating in the street. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how a candidate's fortune um, can be tied to the loud minority?
0: In every single election, candidates, whether they are willing to accept this or not, their fortunes are tied to activists, to protesters, and it can help their campaign or it can hurt it. And sometimes they don't have control over this. Protest allows citizens to sit down and evaluate the record of a politician to make issues salient. And I'm not just saying this and trying to be optimistically, um, I, I don't know, supportive of Uh, the impact of protests, but rather this is what the data has shown over time. If you look at protests going all the way back to the 1960s, we saw this manifest itself. Take 1968. Now, this is a time period that many have used to illustrate that protest does not work on elections because they say that Nixon got into office on a law and order campaign, so hence, protest didn't work. However, I have always argued that protest is a localized thing. It has a localized effect. Enough of protests can definitely snowball to have a national impact, but it has a localized uh, effect. And one example that I often use is the election of Abner Mikva. He was a politician running for uh, office in Chicago, and he ran for office in 66. And when he ran for office in 66, he did not do so well. He lost out. He had some important issues, but he didn't give up. He continued to stick at it. Uh, And he ran for office again in 1968. What happened in 1968 was that the civil rights movement basically descended upon Chicago, not only did you have those racial and ethnic minority protests, but you also had a ton of protests around the Vietnam War, which many individuals were pushing back. There was a complete blue wave of protests, liberal protests, occurring in Chicago. And when Abner Mikva ran in 1968, he was very supportive of racial and ethnic minority concerns. And he was supportive of those individuals pushing back against the Vietnam War. He came out and he spoke about it. And even when the mayor was pushing back against him and the Democratic machine was saying, hey, this is not what we want to do. We don't want you to be on the side of these protesters. He stood with the activists and he got elected in 1968 on almost a landslide. That sort of incident took place throughout America. Now, some might say, well, that's just one particular case. The beauty, I think, of my research is that I look at the impact of protests, not just in one election or one year, but I look at it over decades with thousands of elections. And when you do that, we see that protest is able to not only influence who turns out to vote, but how they vote. Liberal protests leads to Democratic politicians receiving a greater share of the two, um, two-party vote. Share. And if you look at conservative protests, when conservative protests take place, Republicans benefit and receive a greater share of the two-party vote. And so protest is influential at each stage of the electoral process ending with voter um, electoral outcomes.
1: And, and so I guess, you know, here we are in the middle of a week, more than a week of protests. Um, and they are all over the country um, as we see them also pushed on our social media, which is something that you also talk a little bit about in terms of our sort of siloed lives, um, in terms of our ingestion and consumption of information and media. Um, But it's really hard to not see a lot of this information. Um, What do you think about the impact that these protests may or may not have in context of your thesis?
0: As I look off to the horizon here, and we could speak of it in this sort of, in these terms, I see great change on the horizon, to be honest with you. I see immense change on the horizon. The reason why I say that is because we're speaking to each other in different ways now. The dialogue on race in America has changed. It's undeniable. And that's exactly what my work says would take place. And we're seeing it take place. Protest has put these issues on the agenda. Individuals are talking about it. I actually had a email sent to me from the principal of my children's elementary school in which he were encouraging parents to consider racial and ethnic inequality in America. Now, he's a white principal that has never sent us the parents information like this, but in that moment I realized oh this discussion is changing everyday voters, everyday citizens are changing the way that they see this issue. And politicians, recognizing that this is an important issue, are beginning to act because they fear that if they've done nothing and November comes along, they could suffer an an ill fate and be kicked out of office. We've already seen the impact of protests take place in 2018. The House changed completely over to the Democratic side because of the liberal protests. And we've seen it before with the Tea Party. I want to say in 2010 with President Obama, he said, we received a shellacking after the conservative protests that um, took place right before those elections. If we look ahead to November for 2020, Because of this blue wave, all the protests have occurred over the last four years. We can only imagine that there's going to be greater funding towards the side of individuals who advocated for protesters. And that's likely going to be on the liberal side. And it's likely going to be more liberal politicians entering into government riding this blue protest
1: wave. So. My next question for you, having written a book that seems to have hit at exactly the right moment, well done, um, is, <laughs> Daniel, what are you working on now? <laughs> I think
0: about these projects sometimes years in advance. Actually, while I'm writing one project, I'm taking notes on the next project. and. It's just fortuitous that sometimes that next project ends up being important in American society. So the next project I'm working on is, or deals with racial and ethnic inequality, and what are the best policies we can put forth to solve racial and ethnic inequality in America? Uh, I feel almost like it's trying to solve cancer. It's so big. It's so massive. Um, But I think now is the, the, the time, and I didn't think this this particular week, but I've thought this before, that you need to, as we need to as scholars, put forth actual policies that practitioners can take up. Because so often when you look at protests, it is effective in policy changes and I think the elections change, but people often ask, Even in trying to respond to protests, what should we do? How can I help? What can take place? And individuals respond in the best way they know how. There there isn't a guidebook. There isn't enough research on the specific ways in which we can eradicate racial inequality in America. Not damper it. Eradicate racial inequality inequality. And I'm working on eradicating racial inequality in America for my next book.
1: All right. I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> so, so, so when it comes out, I hope you'll come on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about eradicating racial and ethnic inequality <laughs> because I think that's a good thing that we should all get behind. And I am Absolutely. supportive of that. Uh, uh,
0: that, 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 that's right. That I didn't want to sound too grand grandiose de- with that. It, it is the case that at it, it, the, the the very minute
1: level, it's putting
0: forth these policies and seeing which policies work. But man, you gotta you gotta aim big.
1: Aim big. I think you're right. I'm I'm all <laughs> for that. Um, thank you for joining me today, Daniel Gillian, um, the author of The Loud Minority. Why protests matter in American democracy. This is published by Princeton university press in 2020 available at the Princeton university press website, as well as any place else one may purchase a book. Um, and, and thank you for joining me today, Daniel.
0: Thank you for having me. This has been terrific. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.